copy of God's Word now and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. We continue our study this morning in the Sermon on the Mount. And I notice that some of y'all are moving your seats around a little bit. You're confusing me here, so... Matthew chapter 5, and we'll read this morning from verses 33 to 37. As we do so, we read God's Word as an act of worship, exalting Him in it. We do so reverently and attentively. This is God's Word. It is inerrant, infallible, unchanging, and authoritative. Hear it now. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, For you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would bless it to us this morning as we seek to understand your instruction to us, your people. Encourage us by your spirit. Point us to the cross of Jesus Christ, we ask in His name. Amen. One of the things that you realize quite quickly as a parent is that children do not have to be taught how to lie, do they? It comes quite naturally, and I remind you that you all were children at one time, and some of us have not gotten rid of that bad habit very well, have we? In fact, for our children, in order to teach them how not to lie or how to tell the truth, why it's so important, we teach them little jingles, don't we? Fun ones like liar, liar, pants on fire. For those who can't quite get the point, we resort to more extreme jingles. Revelation, Revelation 21.8. Liars go to hell. Burn, burn, burn. If we are honest, many of us have a fairly loose relationship with the truth, don't we? If it won't bring you harm, you will be truthful. But you acknowledge that it can be occasionally helpful to twist the truth just a bit, especially if your wife asks you if the outfit looks good on her. Perhaps most have no conviction whatsoever about telling the occasional or maybe frequent white lie. The supposed value of protecting someone's feelings outweighs the merits of being truthful. What does that say about us, both in the telling of truth and the desire really to hear it? I think one of the things we could say about our society today is There's a crisis of truth. Don't you think so? When you watch 
pre-election debates, how many of those men on stage do you think are really telling you what they believe to be true? And even today, don't you wonder most of the time when you listen to our politicians speak if they are listening to themselves and believe what they are saying? We have a loose relationship with the truth. In other words, the reality in your mind is often different than reality. We don't need goggles to live in a virtual reality. We are all very good at creating a virtual reality without those. Thank you very much. In our passage this morning, Jesus deals with the topic of swearing falsely. Did you know that some men will place their hand on a Bible and swear an oath and not mean a word of it? Mary Poppins called this the pie crust promise, easily made, easily broken. Jesus teaches us this morning that God is the God of truth. And it is His will that His children be people of the truth. It is His will for you to be truthful people. And He instructs you through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to keep your word. God is a God of truth. And He demands truthfulness of His children. And He instructs you to keep your word. First, notice with me from verse 33 that God demands truthfulness from His children. Jesus, switching gears from marriage and divorce to oaths, says in verse 33 again, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have said. Again, Jesus goes back to this formula that He's been using now for, to address several topics. You have heard it was said, uh, and sometimes to the ancients, but I say to you, these antitheses as it were. Uh, Jesus here enters into another topic with the same formula. You have heard that it was said. And every time we see Jesus say that, He's referring to something that was taught in the Old Covenant, usually through Moses, and, but, but these people have heard it taught to them through their religious leaders. You have heard that it was said. Said by whom? Well, the original speaker was God himself, wasn't it? Uh, Moses didn't go up on the mountain and meditate and come up with the laws himself. They were given to him by God. And, and the scriptures describe Moses' relationship with God as an intimate one. God spoke to him face to face, literally mouth to mouth. Moses received all of these words from God, and here particularly, we are reminded of God's instruction through Moses not to swear falsely. The people of Israel were not forbidden from taking vows or oaths. What God told them was when they took oaths, that they were to do so in a certain way. They were not to swear falsely, but were to keep their vows to the Lord. Notice that Jesus uses a couple of terms here. 
You shall not swear, that's an activity, falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. There's the noun and the verb. We take oaths and we swear those oaths. What Jesus is referring to here, the oath is the content of what you say. I promise to do this and that. And that action is the swearing of that oath. In the Old Covenant, they would swear oaths. They would take vows to themselves. We think of a couple of instances when vows were used. Uh, Why would they use vows under the Old Covenant? Well, it added a formality to those oaths. There was often a great deal of ceremony to them to say, I'm serious about this and I want to be held accountable to my word. And when we think about vows and oaths, one of the things that comes to mind is the presence usually of witnesses. There are those who can say, yes, I heard him say that. We think of Abraham in Genesis 24 Uh, verse 2. Remember that he wanted Eliezer, his servant, to go back and take a, a, a wife for his son Isaac. And when he told his servant Eliezer to go back and to take a wife for his son, he said, put your hand under my thigh. Well, that's a very odd thing to do, isn't it? Well, evidently, in that time, putting your hand under a man's thigh was perhaps equivalent to putting your uh, hand on a Bible today. There was a, a solemnity to that event. I am promising before you to fulfill this word to you. Or think about Boaz. You remember when Boaz was taking on the responsibility as a redeemer for Ruth, and he was taking that responsibility from another redeemer who couldn't fulfill it. He took off his sandal and gave it to the other man. In the presence of many witnesses, you can find that in Ruth chapter 4. Turn over with me to Deuteronomy chapter 25, though. Turn to Deuteronomy 25. These are all odd customs for taking vows and oaths. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 7 through 10, we read these words. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say... My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face." Don't you wish that we would bring back some of these customs for fulfilling our oaths and vows? Certainly says, I love you. And she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And all that we should see here is that God had established uh, these processes 
to formalize oaths and vows within the community of Israel. Why? Well, because keeping your word is so important. Not just to having a society in general. We can't have a society if men won't keep their word, can we? A society built on lies is no society at all. It's chaos. But God called on His people, according to Numbers chapter 30, verse 2, to do all that proceeded out of their mouths. If you say that you're going to do something, do that thing. Fulfill your vows. But there's something that we should bring out of here. Go back with me now to Matthew chapter 5. We, we know that God has told His people to, to vow, to do it in certain ways, to uh, have a formality about it, to have witnesses in place. But let's make a comparison here between Jesus' words and what was said to Israel. In Matthew 5, 33... Jesus, bringing this to the mind of all of these people who were gathered, gathered around him, he says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely. You shall not swear falsely. Well, let's notice exactly what was said to the ancients. I'll read to you from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2. Here is the exact instruction to the people. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. When you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it, or on the day after, and anything left over until the third day shall be burned up with fire. If it is eaten at all on the third day, it is tainted. It will not be accepted, and everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity, because he has profaned what is holy to the Lord." And that person shall be cut off from his people. The Lord goes on and he commands him in this reiteration of the law that they are to swear only to the Lord. Whatever they swear, they are to swear to the Lord only. And we think about the third commandment. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. This is a reference to taking the name of the Lord yourself, calling upon the Lord to be a witness, especially in your oaths and vows. God had prescribed a certain method for His people. When you swear, you are to swear by one thing only, and that is the name of Jehovah. I am the ultimate witness. So that our confession of faith can say a lawful oath is part of religious worship. Think about uh, when we accept new members or we bring parents for to baptize their children, we administer oaths. We administer vows in the name of the Lord. Do you promise to do these certain things? 
The confession goes on, wherein upon just occasion the person swearing solemnly calls God to witness. This is appropriate. This is what God commands His people to do. When you take a vow, take your vow to the Lord. Well, let's think just a moment about the Palestinian situation. What, why is Jesus, is He correcting anything here? What's the issue? Why does He bring this into consideration? Well, one, what subject did we just leave? Marriage and divorce. Jesus, in the preceding verses, was chastising men. Why? Because they weren't being faithful to their marriage vows. When you marry a woman, you are to be faithful to her for life. And you're not doing that. In fact, you are giving your hearts over to lust freely. You're not being faithful to your vows. And so here we come to this topic officially. In Jesus' day, one of the things that you should understand is that the Pharisees had developed an elaborate program for taking oaths and vows. Turn over with me to Matthew chapter 23, just a couple of chapters over. Jesus here is pronouncing woes upon the Pharisees and the scribes. You remember these men whose whose religion was purely external. And in verse 16 of Matthew chapter 23, he said to them, Woe to you blind guides who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. Now, remember, keeping that in mind, remember, what did the Lord tell them to do when they swore? Swear to the Lord. But they are swearing on the temple. Verse 17, you blind fools. Which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred. So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees because they are making, intentionally making, their vows empty. Skirting their responsibility. And so this makes us think of something, when we think of all of this formality and ceremony around oath-taking, you think about, think about a witness on the witness stand, and we call him to place his hand on the Bible and say, so help me God. Why do we do that? Why is it necessary at all to call witnesses, to take off your sandal and give it to someone, to put your hand under someone's thigh? Why do we have that at all? Well, we have it because one of the results of sin is that you are unfaithful to your word. Not accidentally so 
But you and I are intentionally unfaithful to what we say that we will do. Very often we take vows that we have no intention of keeping. We we will swear to anything before other people as long as there's a benefit to us in that moment. Even if we have no intention of keeping our vows. We are liars at heart. When I was in school... I got enough notes home about talking in class to wallpaper a room. And one day I got it into my mind that it would be very clever to forge my mother's signature on one of those notes. And I turned it in and I was so smart that I told my teacher I had signed it, that my mother had signed it in the car. That's why it was so messy. I planned my lie. I did it the night before on my dresser. Not long after that, a voice came over the intercom informing me that my father was there to check me out of school. And you can guess what happened on the ride home and when I got home. I got the proper punishment. The question for us as we think about all of this ceremony is this, do you connect truthfulness and truth-telling to godliness? Do, Do you connect those two? Is it, is it a high priority for you to tell the truth at all times, in all circumstances? Is it easy for you to break your word Do you find it a light thing? I don't know about you, but but one of the areas where this can be a struggle as a parent is telling your children that you're going to do something and then just kind of wiping that thing away. I'm too tired. It's an inconvenience. But what do we teach our children about the importance of keeping our word Do you connect truth-telling to godliness? God is, in all of this ceremony, placing your hand under someone's thigh, taking off your sandal. He is impressing upon sensible people, we who need uh, illustrations at times, impressing upon us that this is an essential aspect of godliness. Keep your word. God shows that he takes truth-telling very seriously. The next thing we notice from this passage is that Jesus condemned the Pharisees' perversion of God's law. Verses 34 and 35, they had perverted God's law. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. We see again, don't we, this whole system that they had taken. They they won't swear in the name of God, but I will swear by His throne. I won't swear by the name of God, but I will swear by the earth or by the hair on my head, what's left of it. Jesus says to them, do not swear at all. 
Is Jesus here prohibiting us from taking oaths? You may know that certain men in history have said, you should not take any oath at all. Uh, One man who, uh, uh, by the name of Menno Simons, for instance, in the 16th century, said that he was going to go beyond the Reformation. He was going to reform the reformers. He wanted to bring the church all the way back to an apostolic purity. And so all the followers of Menno Simons and the Radical Reformation would not take any oaths or vows. They would not serve as soldiers in the army because they would have to swear an allegiance. Some of you know the followers of Minnow. They are called in our day Mennonites. And in Article 20 of their Confession of Faith, they say this, we commit ourselves to tell the truth, to give a simple yes or no, and to avoid the swearing of oaths. Are they correct? Minnow Simons, in his own words, says this, Yea, it has come to this among the children of men that the precious yea or nay which was commanded of the Lord himself can no longer be trusted. You and I lament that, don't we? But nearly everything which is transacted before the magistracy must be affirmed by an oath. Why? Because you won't keep your word. Although the Lord has so plainly forbidden the swearing of oaths to all Christians. This is the Mennonite position. Do not swear an oath. God has prevented it. He has prohibited it. Now on the one hand, we can can, uh, sympathize with what Menno is saying here, can't we? The necessity of oath-taking comes from sin. If we had not fallen in the garden, we could trust the yes or no of men. If sin were not in the world, then all men would be truthful at all times. And perhaps fewer wives would ask how the dress looks upon them. Isn't it sad that we think so lightly of keeping our word? And he's totally right that the children of God should be totally truthful whether or not they are under oath. But is he correct that Jesus is here forbidding oaths? The simple answer is no. Let me give you some reasons why. One, God is described as taking oaths. Turn over with me to Acts chapter 2 verse 20. God is described as taking oaths. Acts chapter 2 and verse 20, this is Peter's sermon. And he refers here, uh, moving on down, I've got the wrong reference here. Men of Israel, verse 22, hear the words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you uh, by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad 
and my tongue rejoice, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have, not, you have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Continuing on, verse 29, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day, verse 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. So here we have the illustration from uh, Peter himself that uh, God swore an oath to David. He also swore an oath to Abraham according to Luke chapter 1 verse 73. And turn over with me to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning with verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. So see, you have, first of all, we have this illustration that God himself has sworn an oath. God took oaths. He has sworn to Abraham. And we go on, look at verse 16 of Hebrews chapter 6. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So here we have the biblical um, approval that oaths are final for confirmation. There's uh, no rebuke of taking oaths in Hebrews. Lastly, let me show you one other if you turn over to Revelation chapter 10, verse 5. Revelation chapter 10 Verse 5. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, notice here, Revelation 10, 5, raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what was in it, the earth, and what was in it, and the sea, and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. So here we have in heaven itself an angel raising his right hand and swearing an oath by whom? By God. God swore oaths. Men are approved in their swearing of oaths, and we have an angel also in heaven swearing an oath. It is not correct then to say that the Bible forbids men from taking oaths as Menno Simons would have you believed. What though is Jesus forbidding? Well, notice how his words, if you go back to Matthew chapter 5, notice exactly what Jesus forbid, forbade. Matthew chapter 5, verse 34. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. What Jesus condemned was the Pharisees' practice of swearing by things less than God. He condemned this whole system of swearing by things that 
implied you had no intent to keep your word at all. You did not want to be held accountable for it. What was their objective in this whole system? Pretended reverence. I swear by the gold on the temple. I swear by the hair on my head. I swear by Jerusalem. It's pretended reverence. It has the feel of religion. But Jesus says to them, it is false. Their intent ultimately was to break their vows with no consequence. Did you know that your relationship with God was formalized with an oath? Scripture refers to God's oaths as covenants. Even though Adam was in a relationship with God because he was God's creation, God formalized his relationship with Adam in a covenant. He came down and he bound himself to Adam in a covenant. In his covenant, God graciously promised to bless his people. Even though Adam broke that covenant and and we continue to abide under the consequences of that broken covenant, God was pleased to form a second covenant. God swore a second oath, this time entering into a covenant not with Adam, but with the second Adam, Christ Your relationship with God is based on an oath that God himself swore. God has bound himself to you. And because there's nothing greater by which he could swear, God has sworn by himself not to abandon you who have come to him through Christ. And isn't his promise a source of comfort to you? In your times of of turmoil and trial, don't you you reflect on the promises of God? You, You look to God's Word. You think about places like Psalm 91 where we can come to Him as a stronghold, as a rock. I think about God's promises and I say, even though everything around me seems chaotic and falling into nothing, what gives me hope? Well, God has said to me that the little rock will become a great mountain that covers the earth. That even though I can't see the growth of the kingdom, I know it's growing. Why? Because God swore. You can count on Him. Did you know also that God did not have to make you those promises? There was nothing in Him that required it. it, it didn't, he didn't need it for wholeness or fulfillment. God made those promises to you for your comfort. In Genesis chapter 17, we find a man by the name of Abraham who had not yet had a son. Abraham is old in age and he's thinking to himself in his heart, is God ever going to fulfill this promise? Is God slack in his promise? Is he slow? You know what God did? To bolster Abraham's confidence, he gave him a sign. He gave him the sign of circumcision. 
So that day by day, moment by moment, Abraham would be reminded of God's promise. He would be reminded that God is the God who keeps his promises. And do you know that every time you and I partake in the sacraments, we are remembering God's promises And we remember that those promises are sure because the one who gave them is sure. Is it wrong, therefore, for us to imitate our Father in making promises? In swearing oaths? In imitating Him? In formalizing those promises where appropriate? No, you are like God when you do so. What Jesus is forbidding is sinful taking of oaths where there is no intent to fulfill them. Lastly, thirdly, Jesus reminded the people of God's standard in verses 36 and 37, going back to Matthew chapter 5. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Here it is simply, verse 37. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Here, Jesus issued a command. He said in firm terms, what you say must be yes, yes, or no, no. Let your yes be yes, and your no must be no. Jesus is instructing you and me, his people, to keep our word. In other words, when you say that you are going to do something, simply do it. Be trustworthy people. Be a people who are devoted to the truth. Did you know that it is impossible for God to lie? We learn that in places like Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. Balaam himself could say to Balak, God can't lie. He's not a man that he should lie. God cannot lie because he is holy. He is perfectly truthful. The truth itself is dependent upon God to be true. How very unlike him are we when we will not keep our word. We remember that this all goes back to Christians, the people of God, functioning as the light of the world, as the salt of the earth. Are are we being salt and light in in a lost world when we are people who do not keep our word? When we evade truthfulness? On more than one occasion... We have employed young girls to babysit for us. And then on a couple of those occasions, one of those young ladies would call us the day of and, or the day before and say, I'm so sorry, I'm not coming tomorrow night because my family has planned a beach trip. I'm just not going to do it. And of course, we're... Merciful, we understand, go, that's important, go on the beach trip. We understand. But it's always been interesting that there's no sense of commitment. There's no call to say, is it okay? 
I know that I promised to do this and you have made arrangements around my promise. Is it okay if I go on the beach trip? Or can I help you to find a replacement? And if I can't, keep your commitment. There's the simple assumption that breaking her word was acceptable, normal, natural. Many of us live the same way, don't we? We think very little of our commitments. Our yes is not yes, and our no is not no. I mean, oh, Simons was right. If you're, if you're a citizen of the kingdom of Christ, don't you think that truthfulness is an essential part of that kingdom? If Christ were as faithful to His promises as you and I are, what sort of comfort could we get from them at all? Imagine if we get down the road and Christ appears on the clouds and says to us, yeah, about that escaping hell thing, change of plans. This should not be. In Psalm 15.4, we learn that God delights in the man who swears to his own hurt. Think about that. The man who swears to his own hurt. This language comes into our confession of faith. Jesus finishes here by saying, anything more than this comes from evil. You see, here again, he goes right to the heart. What was the Pharisees' true motivation when they developed their elaborate oath-taking program? What what was the real motivation there? It wasn't oath-keeping. It was oath-breaking. And Jesus said it was from evil. He indicted their motive. Your heart is not set on the truth. By reducing the standard of oath-taking, they created a system for easy promise-breaking They made pie crust promises all the time. No doubt they tried to convince themselves that they were being holy. But Jesus said it was from evil. God is the God of truth. He demands truthfulness of you. And and not just truthfulness as an ethical standard that I'm going to do that. But, But listen, the heart of Christ loved truth. Does your heart love truth? Jesus did not forbid you from taking oaths by His instruction. If that's what you hear, hear then you have misunderstood Him. What Jesus is calling His people to is a wholehearted commitment to the truth. A high standard of truth-keeping. Not just in the practical aspect of doing what you say, but of delighting in being honest and truthful. Giving and receiving truth. And having a sense of godliness when you keep your word. What What Christ would say to you this morning is this, simply. Bring glory to God by devoting yourself to keeping the truth. Amen. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, this, this passage is an indictment of our hearts. We, if we're honest in this moment of thinking about the truth, we have probably spent more time planning ways to get around the truth than we have planning ways to be truthful. We have done more work training our hearts how to be conscientiously deceptive than we have work training our hearts to be truthful, to love the truth. God and Father, You are a God of truth. We recognize that our whole, our whole foundation, our whole hope and trust, that the thing that gives us optimism for the future is Your promise. And not just that, but the promise is made by someone who is trustworthy. You will keep Your Word. Lord God, help us to repent. Many of us need to spend time today confessing the ways that we've been dishonest in contracts and business and, and perhaps with our children and asking for forgiveness for broken promises to our children. Saying, sure, I'll do that, never having any intention to do it. Or to grandchildren. We've given our word to people very lightly and then broken it very lightly, thinking nothing of it. This does not glorify You, O oh Lord. Lord, would You give us a passion and a zeal for keeping our word even to our hurt? And would You use this as a testimony to Your glory? We ask in the name of Christ, Amen.